You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight, if you would turn with me in your Bibles once again to the book of Revelation. And we're looking together at chapter 8 this evening and verses 6 through 13. You'll find this on page 1032 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to be reading chapter 8, verses 6 to the end of the chapter, verse 13. Hear the word of God. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. One of the more impressive and perhaps expensive words in the English language is recapitulation. It means to repeat or to rehearse what has been said in a preceding discourse. People rehearse the points of a lawyer's argument or they will rehearse a teacher's lesson or a politician's speech. They recapitulate it. And recapitulation is a good word to describe, I think, what's going on in the book of Revelation. Its themes are rehearsed again and again in spiral fashion, kind of like a winding staircase. Each time a theme is revisited, it is described with increasing intensity. The book is rooted in the Hebrew way of thinking, and it's full of symbolism. And therefore, we must realize that the text for tonight does not follow sequentially. In other words, the seven trumpets do not follow the seven seals chronologically. The seven trumpets, I believe, are recapitulating what was revealed in the seven seals. They're covering the same ground, but this time with increased intensity. With the seventh seal in verse 1, we reach the end when Christ delivered up the kingdom, you remember. And that's the consummation. 
There will be nothing after the consummation but eternity. So these seven trumpets cannot follow the seven seals in terms of time and history. What John is doing is using a literary tool by which the first five verses are interlocking, seals and trumpets. There is an interweaving of the end of the seven seals with the beginning of the seven trumpets. And of course, as I said, the seven trumpets cover the same ground from a different angle with more intensity. So we learn that God warns before sending judgment. And he emphasizes this by repetition. Green says, in wrath, the Lord ever remembers mercy. Isn't that a marvelous thing about our God? As with the first four seals, so with the first four trumpets, Christ is signifying judgment. None of the trumpets here bring universal destruction, but they are very serious warnings. Afflictions and disasters of various kinds are sent as omens, as it were, of worse judgments to come. And a portion will suffer for the good of the whole, sort of like plucking out the eye for the good of the soul or cutting off the hand for the good of the person. And in warning man of final judgment, God uses the elements of nature. Each blast of the trumpet introduces a different kind of stern calamity. And these calamities characterize the interadvental age. It's a fancy way of saying the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, the two advents, interadvental age. And the destruction is not total, it's limited to a third, and it serves as a prelude to judgment. Note the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. These trumpets required preparation even of angels. So how solemn must be these warnings? What exactly is involved in the preparation is not explained. You and I are left to speculate. The point is that these are so solemn and so serious that even archangels have to concentrate. The first trumpet brings destruction to one-third of the whole earth in verse 7. There followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So this destructive storm of hail and fire brings devastation and loss of much blood. And the passive verb thrown here suggests a violent hurricane hurled at the earth. To emphasize a point, Scripture never highlights, it never underlines, it repeats. And on more than 20 occasions... Jesus emphasized what he was trying to say by doing what? Truly, 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 I say to you. This is important. For the sake of emphasis, therefore, John uses the verb burned up three different times here. On the earth, widespread devastation will ensue, no less than a third of it. And it's a serious warning. And of course, out of mercy, God reminds the inhabitants of the earth of the insecurity of life on this globe. For the Christian, God is a refuge. United to Christ, not a hair can fall from his head. The Lord is my light and my salvation, said David. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's the Christian. But this fallen world is a very dangerous place for anybody who's outside of Christ. And with such vivid symbols, God is forewarning the unbelieving world of what lies ahead. 
The second trumpet brings destruction to one-third of the watery sea. Before it was the earth, now it's the sea. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. So we discover that Christ warns not only by calamities on land, but also by those in the ocean. And something that resembles a vast mountain is flung into the waters. And of all the ocean life and seafaring vessels, a full third of them is utterly destroyed, symbolically. And so to, to the wicked, the throwing of this vast flaming object is to be a terror. It's meant to be. <clears throat> it is not so with believers, let me remind you, who reside safely and secure, securely in the care of God. Again, Psalm 46, one of the church's favorites, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We don't fear when the earth gives way. We don't fear when mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. From these trumpets, believers have nothing to fear. Christ is a shield. But all who have not received him by faith should be utterly terrified at this point. That is the point, you know. Out of mercy, God is giving fair warning of judgment. On that final day, upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences, that fearful and just sentence of condemnation will be pronounced against them. The third trumpet brings destruction to one-third of all the fresh waters. We had the earth, we had the sea, we have fresh waters now. A great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. And so with a demonstration of divine power, God flings a blazing sun upon the earth. It's a little bit like some colossal meteor plunging from space upon this globe. And whatever it is, the effect is devastating. One-third of all the sources of water. The name Wormwood, you probably know, is an Old Testament metaphor for calamity and sadness. Jeremiah witnessed and lamented the judgments endured by Judah, and this is what he said. God has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with Wormwood. Due to the national tragedy, that prophet was filled with bitter sorrow and piercing grief. Now, wormwood itself is not poisonous, but its bitter taste is an apt symbol of sorrow. So the third trumpet signifies the death of many people and the ensuing grief and the sorrow and the pain. It's worldly grief. It's the kind of grief that only produces death, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 7. And this is the inevitable consequence of the world's rejection of Christ. All of its misfortunes, all of its wounds and tragedies and heartaches are simply precursors of death. And that's why the preacher says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. A generation goes, a generation comes, and it's filled with sorrow. In its astonishment and resentment and bitterness and despair, the world perishes, and many of its inhabitants tragically and sadly, close out their lives having no hope whatsoever. Well, then there's the fourth trumpet that brings destruction to one-third of the heavenly bodies. You had the earth, you had the sea, you had the fresh water, and now we go to space. A third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And to whatever catastrophe this refers, it represents divine intervention, doesn't it? 
The sun, moon, and stars are all struck so that a third of their lighting capacity now fails. The life-sustaining effects of the celestial bodies cannot be overestimated. We're told in Genesis 1 that God set the sun and the moon and the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good, life-sustaining. We know that the heavenly bodies give and reflect light and regulate time and govern the tides. The sun itself is a thing of beauty. Its illumination on the earth sustains life and foliage and animals. But with the fourth trumpet, mind you, the celestial luminaries are darkened at the stroke of judgment. It's a heavy stroke. It's a heavy stroke on those things considered among the most stable. Okay, I get the earth. I get the sea and the rivers. But the heavens? So God turns even the most benign and permanent things into warnings. As Joel would put it, the day of the Lord is near. The sun, the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. This was anticipated long ago. And therefore we see that destruction is unleashed on every part of the created order. All of these judgments have to do with things God appointed to sustain life. And they are disasters meant to bring sinners to repentance like those of Moses. I don't think we should miss the parallels between the, these four and the plagues of Egypt. The first trumpet's hail and fire mixed with blood was similar to the seventh plague, isn't it? Exodus 9, there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The second trumpet's bloody sea and dying fish recalls the very first plague, Exodus 7, Moses lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood, and the fish in the Nile died. The third trumpet's undrinkable water also resonates with the first plague. Exodus says the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, but they could not drink the water of the Nile. And then finally, the fourth trumpet's darkened sun, moon, and stars brings to mind the ninth plague. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. You know something, those Egyptian plagues were not the final reckoning, but they were forewarnings of judgment, weren't they? Like the plagues of Egypt, the trumpet calamities warned people of God's coming judgment. And yet sadly, these trumpets in the interadvental period evoke the same kind of response as the plagues themselves. You remember the plagues in Pharaoh? His heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And like those ancient plagues, these trumpets served to harden hearts. Revelation 9, we're going to read, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. They hardened their hearts. And as with the seals, so with the trumpets, there follows an intermission after the first four trumpets. John says, I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. And this bird is not meant to symbolize something noble like the United States bald eagle. That's not even close. The Bible sometimes uses the eagle as a symbol of wrath and vengeance because he is a bird of prey. 
Deuteronomy 28, for example, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. And John hears the eagle crying out loudly, woe, woe, woe on earth dwellers, from a height at which all can see and with a voice which everyone can hear. This threefold woe is an obvious signal of severe judgments yet to come. And if you think those punishments were bad in the first four trumpets, then be forewarned. The next three will be far, far worse. God is warning the unbelieving world of the increasing intensity of judgment. So I think, first of all, as we make observations, we should keep in mind that sin and wickedness do not go unnoticed in heaven. Psalm 33 says, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man and observes all their deeds. God sees our sin. And he deals with it in his own way, on his own terms, at his own time. He is in complete control of history, and he does whatever he pleases. And though circumstances sometimes might suggest otherwise, he is opposed to all evil. The psalmist says, evildoers will tell you this, the Lord doesn't see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Whether now, in this age, or later in the age to come, the Most High will deal with sin. Romans 1, Paul says, even now as I speak, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so according to this judgment, what is terrifying or should be is that people are being given over to themselves. God hands them over to their own depraved desires to do what they want. Modern man is deceived, isn't he? He thinks that God winks at sin, that he's not concerned about it because they don't see fire coming down from heaven. What man fails to realize is that his freedom to commit sin is actually God's judgment. The Lord withdraws his restraint, lets go of the boat, and allows the current to drag it along. Paul told the Lestronians, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. And that explains the terrible development of Gentile corruption and wickedness over the centuries. So Paul concludes by saying, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And there is no greater danger than being abandoned by God to oneself. Hand it over to your own desires. Go for it. See, Neil says this, If God judicially delivers over men who willfully reject him to their lusts, they will sink into the lowest depths of degradation and come to everlasting destruction. I think that's what happens. And since the sinner sins by degrading God, God will then degrade the sinner. So that's the first observation. He does take notice of sin. But secondly, let's recognize that these so-called natural disasters are trumpets for awakening sinners. It's a mercy call. 
Natural disasters are not natural because they have supernatural author behind them. These four trumpets teach that the catastrophes have a designer and a purpose. No matter where it happens or what time on this earth, all the so-called natural disasters have a supernatural author. Eliphaz was right in Job 5. Affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. And retribution in this life comes not by chance. God executes judgment in his time and his way at his pleasure. Isaiah 45, he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And God does not punish without warning. I'm thankful for that. He uses nature. He uses providence. He uses conscience. All these things are designed by God to awaken sinners to their desperate condition. So these disasters all around us are like trumpets. The loud blasts that signal the danger is ahead. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 13, I'm sure. Someone told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He then mentioned those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. And he said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. These are trumpets, he said, in other words, warning us. So we take to heart the hard experiences of life. And they help lead us away from sin and lead us to Christ. Paul never shrank from preaching repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Never shrank from it. As one caught up to the third heaven, he knew what sin looks like before the throne of God. And so when man is in sin, like the one exposed at Corinth, Paul gave them a stinging rebuke and he said, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. So that he might repent. That's the key. We all sin. Everybody in the world sins, but the difference is repentance. Luther said prior to his conversion, the word repentance is repulsive to me. Afterward, he said those texts about repentance charmed and attracted him. But let's remember finally that the final trumpet, until the final trumpet sounds, the door of salvation stands open. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, that the High and Holy One should condescend to warn the world for its good? We know what kept the entire generation of Israelites out of the land of promise. They allowed an evil, unbelieving heart to lead them away from the Lord. And therefore, the author of Hebrews tells us to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As it is said, today... If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So today is a critical moment in our lives. Today, you and I must prepare to meet God. I hope he doesn't mind, but I'm sure Christopher Davis never thought that that day would put him in the hospital close to death, that close to death. Never thought. And God willing, he's going to be restored. But man knows not his time. Until, not until the bell tolls for the final day will he forever shut the door of salvation. So behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. But after that, we know 
that it'll be too late for anybody still unbelieving to turn from sin. And therefore, in Revelation 22, John writes, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Because once that day comes, the evildoer and the filthy will be just as they are and never change. But until then, the angelic trumpets will keep sounding alarm of coming judgment. Things will go from bad to worse, but the free offer of salvation will not cease. That's a mercy. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Isn't that a very welcome invitation that bids us approach the Lord Jesus? He extends favor to every and any sinner who draws near in faith and repentance. That staggers my mind. Any sinner but they have to come to him. They must believe in him. They must repent of sin and trust in him. And the sinner's sense of need and fear of danger must drive him or her to Christ. And the Lord's beauty and glory and love for sinners must draw him or her to Christ. And whether driven or drawn or both, we must come to Jesus to find life. That's the point. And the promise of salvation is made to anyone who will repent and believe in Christ. I don't care what you've done or where you're from or who you are. I mean, quite frankly, considering our guilt and depravity, one might think that he should cast us out. <laughs> he should. But the Lord himself assures us that if we come, he'll never reject us. He will not do it. He will not turn us away. He will not reject us on that great day. And though our condition is bad, and though we have nothing to bring, he welcomes us. Christ receives any and all who turn from their sin and turn to him in faith. He will embrace us. He'll accept us. He'll provide for us. He'll love us forever. He doesn't refuse us at the first, and he'll never reject us at the last. Isn't that wonderful? He receives you and I into the number of his children and the care and protection of his throne and the participation of his grace and spirit and the presence of his glory. And so we concur with Paul in saying thanks be to God for the inexpressible gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.